0: Last couple of weekends, we've been in a series called The Way of the Wise, which is our walk through the book of Proverbs. And this weekend, we're going to be looking at wisdom in dealing with anger and resentment and relational breakdown. I did not do that on purpose for Mother's Day weekend. This was not uh, what I had in mind. You know, I should look at the calendar when I do these things, but felt that this weekend in particular, although started out as as a weekend where I thought, well, we're going to talk specifically about anger, but as I went into the week of preparation, the more I was studying about anger through the Proverbs, the more it kept drawing me back to where the anger comes from in relational breakdown and conflict and how to be wise about uh, relational reconciliation. Because, you know, you could be doing so well in so many areas of your life. You could be doing well professionally and physically and financially, but all of that can be pretty unsatisfying when things are malfunctioning relationally. Wouldn't you agree? You can do so well in so many areas, but when there's relational breakdown, it affects everything. Intelligent people, smart people, people who do well at solving problems every day in other arenas of life often find themselves exasperated by their inability to turn around a relationship that's headed south. The reality is, many of us could be dealing with one or more of those relationships even in life right now. Because let's be honest, all throughout our lives, we can repeatedly find ourselves in these what I'm going to call southbound relationships where there's a fracturing happening, where there's a tension happening, and we find ourselves again and again quite easily in relationships that even for a season are going great. And then there'll be one word. There'll be one interaction. And years and years of trust that's been built starts to fracture in just a moment. We find it quite easily. We find these relationships at work. You can find them in sports or recreation activities. You can find them with people you date or a good friend or someone in your family. You find them in your marriage. Find them at the church. There's frustration and there's hurt and there's guilt and there's anger and resentment. And it just kind of resides there. Harsh words get spoken. There are things we lay awake at night thinking about, wishing that you could say or wishing that you hadn't said. There are knots in your stomach. There's often a lot of tears. And this relational stuff, it happens to everybody. It happens to all of us. You know, we know that we can't make it in life without healthy, growing relationships. Because relationships ultimately make or break our lives. So we need to know, and what we're going to focus in on this weekend, is why relationships tend to break down, and then how God's wisdom is calling us through the presence of Christ to be about reconciliation and relational repair. We're going to walk through three things to consider. This is a weekend. If you're, going to, if you're a note taker, this is the one. Because we're going to, there's lots of slides coming up. This is almost like, okay, buckle up, friends. We've got a ride ahead of us this weekend. Uh, but if you want to write some of this down to think about later, to take into your life group, perhaps there's something you want to share with someone here in the next few days. Three things about moving us towards relational repair. We're going to work through each one. And there's some sub points with each. So just have to kind of track with me. All the slides will be coming up. So according to the book of Proverbs, a wise person understands the constant need for resolving conflict. A wise person practices the essential parts of it, and the wise person discovers the power to actually do it. So let's take a look at what the text tells us about this inevitable constant need for relational repair. That's the first one. A wise person understands that there's constant need for relational attention and repair. Why? Well, take a look at the first proverb. Here's the main reason... Why relationships are constantly in need of repair or maintenance. It says in Proverbs ten eighteen, some important words here whoever conceals hatred with lying lip, whoever conceals hatred with lying lips and spreads slander is a fool. Whoever conceals hatred. A few things we need to step into here. What does the book of Proverbs first of all mean by that word hatred? We have to understand that. We're going to understand why relationships keep breaking around us. You and I think of hatred, and the English word for hatred can sometimes mean for us that screaming, anger, ready to tear someone's eyes out kind of emotion. But if you read through the Bible, you see the word hate used in situations that don't seem quite right to us. Because here's what the Bible means by hate. Hate is not like raging. Hate scripturally is simply this. It's ill will, or even more powerfully, resentment. Hate and resentment, same thing in the Bible. So let me be as practical as I can be. You have hatred, you have ill will or resentment for someone, biblically when this happens, when you begin to find happiness in their unhappiness. That's what the Bible talks about hatred, that's what it is. That resentment, that I get happy when the person I'm in relational conflict with is unhappy. You're into hate when you can find happiness in their unhappiness. For example... Proverbs 24:17 where it says do not gloat when your enemy falls when they stumble do not let your heart rejoice there it is when you see somebody and you have ill will toward them you know you do because when they mess up when they get embarrassed when someone you know, puts them in their place we like it makes us happy you find their unhappiness pleasant You find their unhappiness satisfying. Or if it's not happening, you hope for it. When that person that you're in relational conflict with, if it's really becoming that ill will, if things start to go well for them, it kind of irks you. kind of causes this anger in you. You're rooting for it. Some of us, we spend our days thinking back to a time when someone hurt us and we actually come up with fantasies about what it would be like if we're in the room when that person gets embarrassed. Have you ever done that? You can actually think about a situation that hasn't happened but you hope happens so that person learns their lesson or gets put in their place or knows how you feel. And we'll think about it. When it happens, you've got to smile inside. That's hatred. That's the seeds of hatred. And so what do we do with it? The Bible says, you know, what do you do with hatred? The answer is not what we're supposed to do but what we tend to do is we conceal it. That's what the Proverbs said. But we don't just conceal it from the person we have ill will against. Mainly we conceal hatred from ourselves. We won't call it hate when we see it going on in our hearts. We won't just look at it like that. If you think I'm exaggerating, think about how Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount talks about murder. It's an it's this amazing thing. Jesus is laying out in the Sermon on the Mount the whole way of life with God in the kingdom. This is kind of the way in which life with Him is going to happen. And he's hitting on all these topics. And Jesus says this. He refers back to the law. And he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And the whole crowd goes, yeah, don't kill people. I get it. And then Jesus says, but in my kingdom, if you look at someone and call them a fool, if you look at someone and say this word, raka, which was an, an Aramaic word, which means you're a nobody, you're useless, you're worthless. Jesus says, that's murder. And that puts you in a place of guilty of hellfire strong language when you first read that it seems just over the top you're like Jesus are you doing the hyperbole parable exaggeration thing again like is that what you're doing to make a point because we look at that and say you know speaking that word to someone that's not murder but Jesus says really this question well how do you think murder starts where do you think it comes from it's like the metaphor of every acorn has the potential within it with the right time, the right fertilizer, the right amount of water, to become a whole forest, right? Within that one little acorn, there's the potential there. Very few acorns end up doing that, but it has the power and the potential in it to make it happen. Here's what the scripture is saying. If you can find happiness in someone else's unhappiness, if you smile on the inside, when you see someone else brought down, if you have that, the Bible says, beware, that's the seeds of hate, that's the seeds of murder, And there's enormous potential for a great evil in that. So what do we do when hate is there? Well, we conceal it from ourselves because we won't call it what it is. We conceal it from the one that we're against, that we hold resentment against. But inevitably, like the Bible says, we end up slandering them to others. Here's the point. It says you may try to conceal that hatred. You may try to conceal that resentment that you have against someone But when you're talking about that person to others, it kind of leaks out eventually. It's slander. This other word that's there, every time you see the word slander in the book of Proverbs, it doesn't mean a false report. It simply means a bad report. It doesn't mean a false report, it means a bad report. It doesn't mean you can never say anything of negative evaluation of someone. But this is what it is saying that any communication designed to diminish the person in the eyes of your listener is slander because that's the fruit of ill will. It's about getting allies with yourself against another. It's resentment and it's hatred. And according to this, you see why relationship repair is inevitable? I mean, because when this begins to happen, when just those first indications of ill will and my happiness being found in someone else's unhappiness, when that starts... Community is immediately being destroyed and relationships are starting to fracture and it's happening constantly You see why it's inevitable? Now that it's been defined, do you see that this is happening almost every day? Every day we come up against people who are ruthless or selfish or they're arrogant or annoying or they seem full of themselves and almost Automatically without even thinking about it. What do we begin to do? We begin to look at them a certain way. We just begin to hope somebody will put them in their place. You see, at that moment, we're already slipping into a place of hatred. Inevitably, almost every day with people at work, with people in our families, or others, we come in contact with, we're sliding into this place all the time. And of course, I mean, let's be honest, it is so simple to do. It's so simple to go down that road. But if we do it, if we let ourselves just kind of go down that path, according to the text, we're the ones being foolish. And let's not forget what foolishness is, according to Proverbs. Foolishness is not about being silly, foolishness is about being destructive. If we allow that ill will to happen unchecked, if we roll our eyes at people, even just in our hearts, if we quietly, not even in public, if we root for their failure or embarrassment, if we're maintaining that kind of ill will, if we give bad reports to other people, it doesn't just destroy community, which is horrible, but it ruins us. It's destructive to our souls. This is happening constantly. Sometimes we take murder and hatred and stuff and put it out of our reach and say, I would never get there. And the Bible says the minute we start rolling our eyes at people and living with an ill will, we're already down the road. That's why the wise person understands that relational repair and conflict resolution is something we're doing on the inside constantly. This isn't just when we see something blow up relationally. Because there is usually a whole bunch of steps that have preceded that, that get to that point. So we see why it's inevitable. We see why it's constantly necessary. So what do we do about it? When we have this going on inside of us, what do we do with it? Well, the wise person, here's what happens next. This is the second idea. Practice is the essential parts of conflict resolution. This is where you get your notepad out. Because I'm going to give you, under point number two, kind of this four steps in relational reconciliation. According to the book of Proverbs, four parts, four components to relational repair and doing conflict resolution wisely. This is as practical as we can get. But here's four things under point number two we're going to get into briefly. If we're going to practice the essential parts of conflict resolution, it takes doing this. It takes resisting superiority, releasing from liability, Overcoming evil with good, and having done all that, and only if we've done all that, we confront as necessary. So let's go through these. You ready? Here we go. Four things about relational repair. First of all, this we have to resist superiority. Before anything else can happen in repairing a relationship, this has to come first. Look at Proverbs 11 12 and 13. Whoever derides, now hang on to that word derides, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue a gossip betrays confidence but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. we talked about that verse last week what is the soil in which that ill will the hatred the gossip the slander we've talked about where does, what's the soil that helps all of that grow? well the, word, the Bible says it's this word called derision for ill will hatred and that angst anger to grow you need derision and to deride someone means to look down on someone That's what it means to deride. In other words, for you to maintain resentment towards somebody over the long term, deep down in your heart, you have to be saying, I would never do that. That's something I would never do. I would never say that word. I would never be that hurtful. In order for derision to be there, it's a sense of you have to feel superior to a person. For ill will and hatred to grow, that's the soil it grows in, is a sense of superiority. According to this, that feeling of superiority we have toward people around us is the very root of the ill will and the gossip and the slander and all the things that destroy a relationship. So where does that sense of superiority come from? I mean, if we're to get to the source, where is that coming from? When it says, whoever derides their neighbor has no sense. Literally, in the original language, it would say this, a person without a heart looks down on their neighbor. A person without a heart looks down on their neighbor. To you and me in English, that word heart often means the place we feel from. It's the seat of our emotions. So someone without a heart would simply be someone who's just kind of cold. They're just unfeeling. But when the Bible talks about the word heart, it's speaking about the very core of your being. It's the seat of your entire personality, your mind, your will, your emotions. Your heart is your essential you. That's what the Bible says. It's who you are. So when it says a person without a heart looks down on their neighbor, it's saying the superiority with which we treat the people around us is a symptom, it's a sign of something wrong at the core of our being. It's not just some minor blip or a little problem. It's a huge deal. How is that so? Well, here's the Bible's analysis of what's really going on right down at the core of our heart, right at the core of our being. According to the Bible, first this, every human being desperately wants to be calling the shots and being in charge. We want to be calling the shots in our own lives. At the core of our being, we all want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to determine for ourselves what we do. We want, it started from the garden, we want the place of God. We want to be calling the shots in our own life. And yet, there's this tension in another part of us because we know it's not our place. We're taking the place of God. We want it, and so we take it, but we know it's not ours. And as a result of this tension in the core of our being, as a result, every human being goes out into the world radically insecure and in desperate need to justify ourselves. We constantly need to prove to others and ourselves that we're okay. Because at the core of our being, we know we're not. We know we're not okay deep down. I want to be in charge, and I know it's God's place, and this angst comes at me constantly. We constantly need to prove to to others, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm all right. So here's what happens. Whenever someone then fails you, whenever someone hurts you, that need to prove ourselves kicks in immediately, and we jump on it. And we say about that person or to that person, you know, what an idiot, how stupid. And this is all the tame church approved words. So I just checked that this week. There's other words we say, trust me, I know. Someone hurts you and you jump on it and say that. They're stupid. They're a fool. They're an idiot. Here's how it works. We use the failures of others as an opportunity to convince ourselves that we're okay. That I'm not like them. So when, someone's wrong, when someone wrongs you, you feel justified in assuming a superior position over them. Am I the only one that has ever done this? You know, I can make the one thing that has been done against me, I can take the one thing that has been done against me and I can begin to look at that other person in terms of only what they've done to me. I reduce them completely to a decision they made. If they've lied to me, And I think of them as nothing but a liar. That's all they are. But if I lie, well, that's different because I'm complex and there's probably a good reason for it. And you need to give me a free pass on that one. I mean, why do we do this? Because the Bible says we are desperately trying to convince ourselves that we're okay. And so we do it on the backs of anyone who fails us. That's how we're trying to prove ourselves. And when we begin to do that, that's the beginning of relational destruction. This is why we need to be resisting, strongly resisting this natural urge, this natural need to feel superior and to justify ourselves. Because we are constantly freezing people in their failures and defining them by the things they do wrong against us for no other reason than it makes us feel better. And so we freeze them in their failure and say, that's all they are, that's all they'll ever be, so I can feel better about myself. That's the reason why it says whoever derides their neighbor has no sense, but the one who has understanding holds their tongue is silent. It's not just talking about gossip there. This is saying if you, if you know that you tend to jump on people and feel superior to them, if you know that, then we deliberately keep our hearts from doing that. And when someone else fails, you treat them with sympathy and empathy and respect and kindness. We hold our tongue. It's the only way we're going to repair relationships is to first immediately and from the front end resist the superiority that's the root of every other thing that comes after it. We get this part right about resisting superiority. There will be no soil for hatred and anger and gossip to grow in. Because the only place it grows is in the place of derision where I'm above someone else. And my validity is on their backs to make me feel better. Once that's removed relationships can start to be repaired. But here's second. Second, you must release the person from liability. What does that mean? Look at Proverbs 24, 28 and 29. It says, Do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they've done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. That's all economic language. Or economic language, depending on where you're from. Did you notice that? It's the language of liability. When when he says, I'll pay them back, what that means is, I'm going to exact the payment back to me from what that person took from me. I'm going to get out of them what they got out of me. I'm going to take from him what he took from me. It's economic language. I hold the person liable for what he has done. So how is it that we release someone from liability? This one's really hard, by the way. This is where for week three, three weeks in a row, it gets really heavy in the room. Here it goes. Proverbs seventeen nine. Here is we have the perfect example of what it means to forgive. It says, Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. You know, when you first read that phrase, cover over, what comes to mind? When you see the word cover, does that sound like cover up? Maybe that's the first thing you think of. In fact, even the word over kind of leads to that, that sense that you're supposed to you know, cover up an offense. So when someone wrongs you, is that what it's saying? Cover it up, pretend it's not there, sweep it under the rug, everyone's fine, stiff upper lip, on we go, don't feel anything. Pretend it didn't happen, not at all. So let's go here, first this. Do you know what it means to hold a grudge? Here's how you know you have one. It's that you constantly dwell on what was done. It's always the past. First of all, you tell yourself over and over, that person did that to me. That person did that to me. Of all people, that person did that to me. You wouldn't believe what that person did to me. They did it to me. Like, yeah, it was 15 years ago, but they did that to me. I can't believe they did that to me. Again and again, you think about it. You indulge memory. You just keep repeating it to yourself. And as a result, we're superior immediately. And ill will starts to creep in. You start rooting for their failure or embarrassment, for them to, like I've talked about, to get what's coming to them. You're rooting for someone to, something to go wrong with them. So you repeat the offending incident to yourself again and again and again. And as a result, you end up repeating it to other people. You tell people. Maybe even under the guise of warning them about a dangerous person. You end up slandering someone. Or this happens in close relationships a lot. Happens in marriages a lot. You keep repeating the offense to the one who hurts you. And you never let them live it down. You never let them forget. Constantly bringing up the past. Parents, we do that with our kids sometimes. We just keep coming back to the thing that hurt or offended or was a disobedience. And we never let them grow out of it. So what does it mean? Then the Bible's command to cover a sin. It doesn't mean to cover up and pretend it's not there. It means to stop repeating it and playing it over and over again. Do you know why we keep repeating it? Because when we're hurt, we want to exact the cost. When we repeat it, we're making them pay the debt. That's why we repeat it to others. That's why you repeat it to yourself. That's why you're repeating it to the person who hurts you. And when you see things go wrong in your lives, in their lives, you know why you feel better? You legitimately feel better when the person you're in conflict with hurts. You know why you feel better? Because your sense of debt is going down. Because you feel that they don't owe you as much because they're hurting now. If you can hurt them, you start to feel a little better because you're exacting the cost from them. So now what does it mean in this context to cover an offense? Well, it's the opposite of dwelling on it and repeating on it and exacting the cost. Here's what it means. If you get up from a meal at a restaurant, a lot of you are going out to eat today, I'm pretty sure of that. And a lot of people around the table have now incurred a debt. And you say, don't worry, don't worry, everybody put your wallets away, I'll cover it. First of all, you're the greatest friend ever and I'd love to hang out with you. Um, But what what is happening there? Someone's covering it. It doesn't mean it just goes away. It means someone's absorbing it. So to forgive an offense means you pay the cost. It's true. Here's how we forgive people the first time you're ready to indulge yourself in thinking about something in the past and you're trying to bring it up to yourself, you say, no, I'm not going there. You take the thought captive and you make it obedient to Christ. We turn our minds away from it. And as soon as we do, you know what happens? We say, ouch, oh, that hurts. It hurts not to indulge the memory. Why does it hurt? Because you're now paying the cost. You're covering it. You're absorbing the debt of what someone did to you. You're absorbing it yourself. Or the first time you have an opportunity to run that person down. I mean, someone throws you a softball to really hit this one out of the park, and you can just go after that person, but you stop yourself and say, No, I won't. Ouch! Oh, that hurts. Why? Because you're covering the debt. And we might say, Wade, you have no idea the pain down in my life, that is too difficult. Yep, it is. It's way too hard. Sometimes the truth is this. Actually, all the time, the truth is this. Being a follower of Jesus means doing really hard things. You know what the alternative is? It is to forgive. But the alternative is this, to act foolishly and be destructive in your relationships. And those are the only two alternatives. We can release from liability or we will constantly make the other person pay and destroy every relationship around us. You can either let the evil completely beat you as you think you're beating it by fighting fire with fire, by ill will, by resentment, by slander. You can either be defeated utterly by evil or you can forgive even though it's painful. And those are the two alternatives that God lays before us is the way of the wise and the way of a foolish person. Thirdly, you got to get moving. You have to overcome evil with good. Proverbs 25:21. It's a passage quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 where it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. It's a famous, famous quote. It's also terrifying. This is what we're being told. Most of us when we hear the Bible say, you know, don't have ill will, don't try to find your happiness and their unhappiness, don't have it in for somebody, you say, okay, fine. So I'll just isolate from them. I'll just ignore them. We'll just pull back. You say, okay, I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to have ill will toward them. I just don't care about them very much. I, don't want to, I just don't want to see them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Tell me if you've ever, ever in your life heard these words or said them yourself. I know I have to love them, but I sure don't have to like them. Anybody? Oh, yeah, God commands me to love. Oh, I'm going to love. I'm just not going to like them very much. I mean, what are we doing with that? What is that? What we're being being told here is that we can't draw those lines. We can't make compartments like that. There's no escape from ill will resentment and the twisting and destructive natures of it unless we begin to positively will the person's good. It's not enough to just respond to evil with evil or even to respond to evil with apathy. We have to overcome evil with goodness. There's nothing easy about this, but as followers of Jesus, we are called to position ourselves as avenues of blessing primarily into the lives of those who we consider our enemies, whoever they may be. You cannot walk with Jesus and not run up against enemy love and what it truly means to be positioned as an avenue of blessing into the lives of people who are against you. It is at the core message of the gospel. But lastly this, practicing the steps of reconciliation then we confront as necessary. So here's how it is. If you've overcome evil with good, if you've dealt with the superiority issue, if you're absorbing the debt yourself, then and only then do we begin to confront. Proverbs 27.5 says this, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. You know, it is absolutely unloving to just let somebody keep going who is doing wrongs to you and doing wrongs to others. It's not loving to the rest of the world who's going to be hurt by them. And it's not loving to the person if they don't know the effects of their words and actions. So a courageous conversation needs to happen. But here's we have to see this. The confrontation, that intervention only happens when the inner work of forgiveness has happened in my heart. Because if we don't forgive at the front end, if we're not going in with triumphing over evil with good and having that sense of having their good in mind... When we approach that person, either we'll be so angry that you don't confront, or when you do confront, it just adds fuel to the relational fire. If we resist superiority, release from liability, and overcome evil with good in our actions, then and only then do we confront as necessary. And not that you have to confront every time. There are some offenses that some of us, we've really got to get over it. I've been hanging on to it for too long, and it just needs to be put aside. But when you see, according to Galatians 6, a person doing the same harmful thing habitually over and over and over again for their sake and the sake of the community, for the world's sake, you have to speak to them. You have to go to them. But only when the first three steps of reconciliation of my heart have happened first. You know, I hope we're getting a sense of this because if you are, I mean, if we're truly grasping this, you're probably realizing at this point what we've talked about is spiritually impossible. It's impossible. I mean, especially the stuff about willing someone's good, absorbing the cost, that sense, overcoming a sense of superiority, and then able to confront without a sense of ill will. Most of us say, as I said this week, I can't do that. That's impossible for me. To which the Spirit of God whispers, you're absolutely right. But see, this is where the wise person discovers the power to really do it. Forgiveness takes a spiritual power. The only thing you can possibly do to avoid constant community breakdown, constant relationship breakdown, and being twisted into the very evil that has been done to you. If we're going to avoid that, we need some kind of spiritual power. So where do we get it? What is at the heart of relational repair? Well, here it is. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from them. Now hang with me on this one for a minute. When you first read that, the way it's translated is kind of disturbing. Because it really seems to be saying this. It seems like we should be going to our enemies and saying... Hey, good news for you. I don't have to pay you back because God's going to get you. Lord, there's the perpetrator. Send the nukes. I'm standing over here. That's what it can sound like. Is that what it's saying? We can just go tell them that they're in for trouble from God. Not from me, but from God. Not at all. The scripture says, well, Deuteronomy and Romans, you've heard, maybe heard this phrase, vengeance is mine. It's mine to repay. You ever heard that says the Lord? we read that and can start to think that God is really going to punish the person that's hurt us. If that's our reading, that is a misreading and a misunderstanding of all of the vengeance language of Scripture because we have to read those statements in light of Jesus Christ. You go to Isaiah 53, which is speaking about Jesus. Hear these words carefully. It says, Surely He, that is Jesus, took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him, and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, the vengeance, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds were healed. We all like sheep, we're all in the same boat here, friends. We all have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own our own way. Hear this? And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity, the bad stuff of us all. So what does it mean that vengeance belongs to the Lord? that the vengeance is his. It means that he took the vengeance and the punishment, he absorbed it and turned it into mercy. He loves you enough to do that. He takes all the vengeance, and not just for the person who has done something against you, he takes all the things that I deserve vengeance for too. You see, the power to forgive... And to keep anger from dominating our emotions and to resolve conflict in an honorable way comes from experiencing the ministry of Jesus to your heart, to the core of your being, personally. This message is not just about trying harder to get along with people. This is a call to an absolute surrender to the way of Jesus, who has loved you perfectly in spite of your sin, who absorbs the vengeance, who absorbs the punishment, turns it into mercy and wills your good and holds no resentment against you. You're no longer an enemy of God in Christ. You stand forgiven. Therefore, for us to walk in a way of reconciliation, it has to mean that we have personally, at a deep, deep level, at the core of who we are, we have understood the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that we have been set free. It's not ours to, ours to repay. Vengeance isn't ours. Vengeance is God's. And when we place people... In the hands of God, it's not for their punishment, it's for their mercy. It's for the love, it's for the goodness of God to be poured out upon them. As long as we stand in a position that says, I'm not going to punish them, but God sure is, that's still the ill will thing. We're not willing their good, we're willing their harm. And God says, you give them to me. I've taken the vengeance, I've taken the punishment. I'm not punishing them. I am going to love on them. I'm going to show them grace. I'm going to show them mercy. And my kindness will lead them to repentance. So what does it mean to truly place people in the hands of God and wisely walk in reconciliation? It means this. We have been radically transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and His life in us. This message is a call to understand the gospel, to receive the power of God, to do in us And through us, what we can never do on our own. We don't have the capacity for this kind of reconciliation and relational repair. But when you've experienced it as one who lives under the reign of grace, we can live that way towards others. Would you pray with me? We're just going to take a moment, and as we do every weekend, simply take a moment of pause for reflection. What do you sense the Spirit of God saying to you this morning? You know, maybe the first resistance of your heart sounds something like, well, my relationship situation is complex, this doesn't apply. Before you go there and just write it off, would you ask Jesus to highlight something for you? I know it's not like math, that this plus this plus this always equals this. But is there one thing that God wants you to press into and pay attention to? What would that be? Ultimately, I think the challenge this week is this. This is a week of ultimate surrender where I surrender Jesus to you. I surrender my past to you. I surrender my pain and my hurt. I surrender it to you. This might be the week of surrender. Where we surrender people into God's loving care and then begin that internal work in us before we ever get to them. And it's going to take this daily, maybe hourly, maybe every few minutes every hour, to resist that superiority, to be releasing from liability. This isn't like a spiritual pill we take once. You've called us to constant attention to the relational health of, in our world. And so we surrender to you, our loving God. Show us the way. We need you. And for the person that may be coming to mind for you that you know God's calling you to do some relational work with, remember, it starts in your heart. It starts in my heart of getting those things right. And God will give you the power when we choose to walk by grace as wise people and seeing relationships thrive with goodness and trust and mercy and love. And Jesus, we surrender this to you in your name. Amen.